ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Tuesday the 20th of February. I'm Rachel Mealy, coming to you from the lands of the Turbul and Yagara people. Today, Queensland's top cop calls it a day amid an ongoing youth crime crisis and the quest for an artificial human heart. An Australian engineer's prototype will soon be tested on a human. It could be an off-the-shelf alternative to organ donation. It's Australian technology, it's an Australian idea. Uh, It's got some technical tweaks that will provide every hope that it'll work better than anything that's been done before and we've been trying for a long time. First today, the Australian Navy is set for a major overhaul with the federal government unveiling plans for a new fleet of small, well-armed warships as part of a long-awaited review. The review, which focuses on the Navy's surface fleet, also recommends a scaling back of the troubled hunter-class frigate program. It's in response to growing warnings that Australia faces a defence capability gap, but some remain sceptical over whether this Navy shake-up will fix that. Gavin Coote reports. The Navy, with its ageing fleet and costly delays that have plagued new projects, is facing mounting challenges. Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles wants to set it on a different path. We inherited a declining fleet from the former government and we did not inherit a plan to replace it. At Sydney's Garden Island Naval Base, the Deputy PM's unveiled plans for more warships following a sweeping review. It's claiming to have found a $20 billion funding hole in the Coalition's Hunter-class project to build nine anti-submarine warships. While that project has avoided the axe, the number of ships will now be whittled down to six. There'll also be a second tier of smaller but heavily armed warships. We will procure a new general purpose frigate, of which we will procure 11. And this will be a new class of ship for the Royal Australian Navy. The government says under the plans, the Navy will have the largest fleet since the end of the Second World War, but it comes with a hefty price tag. Over the course of the next decade, the cost of procuring the surface fleet that I've described will be $54 billion. Now, in the defence budget today, there is $43 billion allocated to our surface fleet over the course of the next decade. And so a component of today's announcement is that we are are increasing defence spending by an additional $11.1 billion over the decade, which includes $1.7 billion over the forward estimates, so that this plan is fully funded. The Chief of Navy, Vice Admiral Mark Hammond, says reshaping the fleet will put Australia on a stronger footing. And against the backdrop of increasing geostrategic uncertainty, as described in the Defence Strategic Review, this is a consequential investment in national security. Defence analysts see the planned overhaul as critical. It's really important because I don't want to get too melodramatic, but we are at risk of not having a Navy. Dr Marcus Hellier is Head of Research at Strategic Analysis Australia. The chickens have come home to roost from over a decade of terribly bad decision-making between the previous government and the senior leadership of Defence. So between the two of them, they have got us into a terrible position. 
The Navy currently has 11 service combatant ships in service, but the first of the eight ageing Anzac-class frigates is soon due to retire from service. Marcus Hellyer thinks the plan for more small warships could help plug a gap. For each Anzac to be retired as a hunter-class frigate comes online, those poor old Anzacs will have to serve until they're about 40 years old or even older. Those, those ships were designed to serve for 25 or 30 years. That's pretty normal for a warship. We're asking them under the current plan to go for 10 years or more beyond that. The Navy revamp comes as the government faces ongoing scrutiny over its national security credentials. 39 foreign nationals were found in a remote part of Western Australia on Friday after they said they travelled by boat from Indonesia. Opposition leader Peter Dutton has questioned the level of surveillance being conducted and accused the government of funding cuts to Australian border force. But Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says those comments are reckless and damaging. This operation is better resourced and better backed by our government than it has ever been before. This used to be a clear um, bipartisan approach. We should not telegraph to people smugglers or anyone else about the specifics of how we are patrolling our borders. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill ending that report by Gavin Coote. As pressure mounts on Australia's supermarket giants, there's fresh evidence that shoppers aren't happy with the way the major supermarkets are displaying their prices. A survey of nearly 11,000 people by Consumer Group Choice has found many think Coles and Woolworths specials or promotions are confusing and Choice says even misleading. They're calling for more transparency on grocery prices, as Stephanie Smale reports. When a discount or special label catches your eye in the supermarket aisle, how closely do you look at the price it's being compared to? The consumer group Choice is worried Coles and Woolworths aren't being clear enough about specials and promotions and says thousands of people it surveyed agree. Senior campaigns and policy advisor for Choice B Sherwood says it can be a problem with any product. She says one of the major supermarkets listed a bottle of shower scrub on sale at $4.50, but it was compared to the price more than five years earlier. We're calling on supermarkets to provide that historical pricing information um, just so that consumers have access to understand and know what prices were before um, or provide that information on the tag. Would that look like a list of the prices over time on the shelf, on the tag on the shelf? Yeah, look, that could be done in a number of ways. I think it would obviously have to be user-tested um, by the supermarkets to ensure that they're doing it in a way that um, consumers can access, possibly through online pricing, so you can see kind of what the price used to be. B Sherwood says other tactics like member-only discounts aren't fair either, and the group is calling for new rules to make the system more transparent. Retail specialist from the Queensland University of Technology, Gary Mortimer, says shoppers don't even use unit pricing to save themselves money, so it's unlikely they would use historical information either. Uh, you know, we've run at QUT now two um, peer-reviewed published studies that talk about unit pricing, finding time and time again. Shoppers don't even look at the unit prices on the label. So I think adding more information to the label uh, you know, doesn't actually empower consumers to make informed choices. Supermarket labelling is one of a long list of issues being investigated by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. The World Today has contacted both Coles and Woolworths to ask them about the way specials are displayed and whether they would consider making historical 
historical pricing information available. In a statement, a Woolworths spokeswoman says the company works hard to ensure it complies with all Australian consumer laws and communicate their prices clearly and accurately through their catalogue in store and online. Concerns about the concentration of market power have spilled into alcohol sales too. Australia's biggest alcohol retailers that are linked to the grocery giants are selling more of their own private label wine, beer and premixes. Kathleen Davies owns a website called Nip of Courage that sells and wholesales Australian spirits. The big, big supermarkets have got access to so much data from their suppliers and so they know what bottle shape to use, they know what colours work, they know what ingredients and spirits you know, tickle the fancy, they know what price point. So they've got so much more, I guess, on their side to make their products succeed. She says even the most informed consumer can find it hard to spot the difference between smaller independent brands and their mass-produced competitors. And she says it's hard for smaller operators to keep up. And if it doesn't succeed, they're not closing down a cellar door. You know, they're, they're not, you know, sacking brand ambassadors for their business or salespeople. You know, it really is a disadvantage to Australian-made products uh, that are truly handcrafted. She says the upside is if big business are using Australian manufacturers to make their product, it helps that company get money to make their own product. Retail specialist Gary Mortimer says the private label alcohol business won't be shrinking anytime soon. I don't think we'll see supermarkets or any retailers moving away from that. I mean, you walk into a Kmart store today, you buy Anko brand. We know it's Kmart. It's just not called a Kmart toast or a Kmart kettle. The liquor retailers say their home brand and exclusive products are great for shoppers who want to tipple on a budget. Stephanie Smale and Amelia Turzon reporting. The widow of Russia's leading opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, has vowed to fight on against the Russian state. Mr Navalny died in a Russian jail on, in Siberia on Friday. His wife, Yulia, is presenting herself to fill the void left by her husband, saying she'll continue his fight against Russian President Vladimir Putin in honour of her husband's legacy. Nicole Johnston reports. Привет. Hi, I am Yulia Navalny. Today I would like to address you on this channel. I should not be here. I should not be recording this video. Another person should have been here where I am now. But Vladimir Putin killed this man. Yulia Navalny, the wife of Alexei Navalny, posted a nine-minute-long video message accusing Russian authorities of hiding her husband's body. Prison officials say he collapsed after a walk and died at a prison colony in the Arctic Circle. They deny any responsibility. Alexei loved Russia more than anything in the world. He loved our country. He loved you. He believed in us, in our strength, our future. He believed that we deserve better. He believed not just in words but in deeds. His belief was so deep and sincere that he was ready to sacrifice his life for it. Alexei Navalny often spoke about his death, but he never gave up on his democratic dream for a country free from corruption and cronyism. Now his grieving wife, Yulia, is taking up the mantle. Andrei Soldatov is the editor of website Agentura that investigates the Russian secret services. He says Mrs Navalny is perfect for the job. 
we lost a united figure in Alexei Navalny and uh, that Yulia decided to, well, to replace him. It means a lot because we need such a figure. She is already well known among the Russians. She just didn't have her own political career, but thanks to social media and her presence on social media and the life of your husband, we know her. Will it be difficult for her, though, to rally the morale of the opposition at such a time? Well, I think she has a chance to actually to win more support than some traditional opposition leaders because she doesn't have any history of arguments and intrigues within the community of Russian opposition. Mr Navalny's death has stunned but not surprised European leaders. The European Union's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, says President Putin will pay and new sanctions are coming. As you know, he was uh, slowly murdered in a Russian jail uh, by Putin's regime. But Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov has called the allegations boorish. The investigation is underway. All the necessary actions are being taken, but no results have been published so far. They're not known yet. When there is no information, we consider it absolutely unacceptable to make such, well, frankly, obnoxious statements. To Russia's opposition, Mr Navalny was courageous and charismatic, and they say his death is a call to action. Nicole Johnston reporting. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. After five years in the top job, Queensland's police commissioner has announced her resignation. Katerina Carroll says her last day will be next Friday, the end of an historic era for Queensland police. Commissioner Carroll was the first woman to hold the role when she was appointed in 2019. Our reporter Elizabeth Cramsey joins me now. Elizabeth, what's happened? Well, Rachel, the Queensland Police Commissioner has been under pressure to resign for some time. And after a morning of speculation about her future, a short time ago she announced that she's stepping down. Here's what she had to say. This morning I have advised the Minister that I will not seek an extension to my contract as Commissioner. Since the start of the year, I've had candid conversations with my husband, with my children, who have been unbelievably supportive every step of the way. I made this decision and was going to have the discussion about not renewing my contract with the Minister in about two weeks' time. But because of the heightened speculation and commentary, I brought these discussions forward. Katerina Carroll was the first woman to take the top job in Queensland. She was the Commissioner for Queensland Fire and Emergency Services prior to 2019. And since she took the job as Queensland's top cop, it certainly hasn't been an easy road. The COVID pandemic presented a raft of challenges and then in 2022 there was a state government inquiry looking specifically at how police respond in this state to the issue of domestic and family violence. Now, that inquiry was damning of the police and it specifically identified a failure of the leadership which had allowed a toxic culture of misogyny, sexism and racism to brew within the Queensland Police Service. Despite that, the Commissioner retained the support of then-Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk, who at the time said to bring about the reforms and the cultural change it needs a strong woman, and that strong woman is the Commissioner, Katerina Carroll. 
There was some speculation at the time that Anastasia Palaszczuk had played a role in protecting the commissioner. Then, only a month or so later, was the tragic death of Emma Lovell, who was allegedly murdered in her home north of Brisbane. Now, that crime really brought the issue of youth crime in Queensland to a head, and the pressure on the commissioner to do something about the problem has just continued to mount. And what's the government had to say today in the wake of her decision? Well, the police commissioner was flanked by both the police minister, Mark Ryan, and the premier, Stephen Miles. Let's hear what the premier had to say. On behalf of all Queenslanders, I want to thank Commissioner Carroll for her great service to our state. She has led both our fire service and our police service with distinction. She has delivered important reforms to both organisations. I've been proud to work alongside her and uh, seen her leadership of the service. That's Queensland Premier Stephen Miles speaking a short time ago. Our reporter, Elizabeth Cramsey, thank you. Well, it's been a turbulent morning for the mining giant BHP after its half-year profit crashed by 86%. The world's biggest miners' nickel division is also suffering with lingering doubts about its viability, given a glut of the metal used in battery production coming from Indonesia. I spoke earlier with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Peter, we're used to seeing BHP post monster profits, but there are some very big one-offs here that have eaten into the profit. Well, that's right, Rachel, and that profit after tax attributable to BHP shareholders is $900 million US dollars in the six months to December. Now, that might sound like a lot, but it's actually down by 86%. This time last year, it came in at $6.5 billion US dollars, but there have been some pretty painful impairments, three $2.2 billion more for the Samarco Dam collapse in Brazil back in 2015, and another $2.5 billion relating to BHP's nickel operations in WA. Late last week, when BHP said it was considering mothballing WA nickel, the federal government put nickel on the critical minerals list and gave it access to a $4 billion fund to support miners who are being smashed by cheap nickel coming in from Indonesia, which is driving down the nickel price. BHP Chief Executive Mike Henry says he didn't ask for the help, but he's thankful anyway. But he is confident that supply and demand for nickel will eventually improve, given the growth in battery demand needed for EVs and high-quality Australian nickel. But he says it could take a decade. So nickel demand outlook remains strong. Um, you know, the rate at which EV penetration is, is growing, something like 15% of, uh, of overall automotive sales now. This is really a supply side story. But the, the single biggest factor is this surge in supply that's come out of, uh, out of Indonesia, which has taken everybody by, by surprise just how quickly that's come on. We expect that's going to persist for a period of time, possibly through to the end of this uh, decade. In parallel with that, the nickel that gets produced here in Australia is much lower carbon footprint than some nickel being produced uh, elsewhere, uh, as well as having other uh, better sustainability uh, credentials. And so if there were a way of the, if the market was functioning in a way that priced that in, that would, of course, be a what we view as a truer reflection of the value of the underlying product and will be a contributor to the economic viability of the industry here in Australia. That's BHP Chief Executive Mike Henry there. And Peter, while we have you, I've seen the news that the ANZ Bank has won its takeover bid for the Suncorp Bank in Queensland. How significant is that? 
Well, Rachel, this is very big news and it has been a hard-won battle for the ANZ, but the Australian Competition Tribunal has now overturned an earlier veto from the competition regulator, the ACCC. The tribunal now says the $5 billion bid for Suncorp's banking arm would not substantially lessen competition. Both ANZ and Suncorp have welcomed the ruling, but the final decision rests with the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, himself a Queenslander, aware of the local perceptions about a Melbourne-based bank taking over a Queensland banking brand. In a statement, Dr Chalmers says he'll carefully and methodically consider whether the proposed acquisition is in the national interest and he'll reveal his decision in due course. Peter Ryan. It's being billed as an off-the-shelf alternative to organ donation. Australian scientists are developing the world's first long-term artificial heart, with the federal government announcing a grant of $50 million towards the project. Transplant recipients hope the research will ensure more people get access to the life-saving technology. Alison Shaw reports. Nice push. Thank you. Inside this theatre at Chicago's Northwestern Memorial Hospital, Surgeons are taking out a man's heart to give him a new chance at life. Starting incision? It's a delicate and risky operation. In Australia, around 100 heart transplants are performed every year. I was sitting there with my family with a bit of hope and something, and a chance to see my son grow up and so forth. I'm a very lucky boy. 52-year-old Jaden Cummins received a heart transplant in 2019. I got the flu, just a really bad flu, and it attacked my heart. Uh, which obviously made my heart deteriorate to such a point that um, uh, I was actually operating at about 7%. He was implanted with a left ventricular assist device, or LVAD, for about 15 months. I was living as a cyborg with that uh, with that beautiful machine and it was able to, you know, help me to the point where I was fit enough and, uh, and healthy enough that I actually then survived the heart transplant. But many patients with advanced heart failure die while waiting for a heart transplant. Researchers in Australia hope to change that. They're trying to develop a new generation of artificial hearts. Associate Professor Sean Gregory is the co-director of the Artificial Heart Frontiers program at Monash University. We're using state-of-the-art revolutionary techniques, techniques that are applied to completely different disciplines to revolutionise artificial hearts. Speaking to ABC RN presenter Sally Sara, he says the project involves regular trips to the hardware store. We, we have a frequent flyer card with Bunnings, basically, because <laughs> we go there a lot. If you think about the heart and the blood vessels, they're kind of just pipes, right? And so we, we put a bunch of pipes together to replicate the heart, and, and that's how we test our devices on a bench top. He says current artificial hearts are used to bridge the time until a patient receives a transplant, but his team's device could be a longer-term alternative. Current, for instance, artificial hearts, they, they rely on a similar pumping mechanism to the native heart, where it's kind of like balloons that are filling and contracting just like your normal heart. It's going to wear out after a while. Whereas our devices use a spinning disc and it's magnetically levitated. It's just a disc spinning in there, pumping blood around the body and having no mechanical wear and, interestingly, no pulse. Professor Gary Jennings is the Chief Medical Advisor at the Heart Foundation. He says the new technology could be a game-changer 
in the area where donor hearts have been increasingly difficult to find. The availability of hearts for transplant has been a, has been a big problem. Has meant a lot of people uh, have not been able to um, get the transplant before they have an untoward event. So uh, we desperately need ways to ensure that uh, people that are eligible and got an alternative like this artificial heart. It's Australian technology. It's an Australian idea. Uh, it's got some technical tweaks that will provide every hope that it'll work better than anything that's been done before and we've been trying for a long time. Transplant recipient Jaden Cummins says the technology will make a big difference. I just think it's absolutely brilliant and it's something that you know gives hope. He's just celebrated his five-year anniversary of his transplant. I feel absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I've got to watch my boy grow up and finish his HSC. He was 13 when I first got sick and was placed on life support and was given two days to live. You know, I've had all of that extra time with him that I really shouldn't have. And just a few months after transplant, I met the love of my life and uh, we're now engaged to be married. And it's just a privilege to be here. I, I take absolutely nothing for granted. And the thought of that being more readily available for other regular people like me is um, its heartwarming. Excuse the pun. It's amazing. Transplant recipient Jaden Cummins ending that report by Alison Shaw. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Rachel Mealy. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. He had a vision of a democratic Russia, of a nation that could sit alongside its European neighbours. And he was a constant thorn in the side of the Russian president. So now Alexei Navalny is dead, who will take on Vladimir Putin? And who's next on his hit list? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener.